0: Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Rukindi. Today, we're exploring the ins and outs of effective leadership, a critical skill in any endeavor, and we have the perfect guest to help us grow in the space, John Stathakis. With a rich background of 27 years in leadership and a knack for inspiring teams, John brings invaluable insight, not to mention he's my father. So join us as we explore the nuance of leadership, how to become an effective project manager, and more. So thank you so much, John, for sharing your knowledge with us today, and welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Alexa, for inviting me to come and speak to you. I'm really looking forward to being able to engage with you on these questions and very inspired by the journey that you've gone on with your podcast
0: Thank you. So to begin, did you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself? What got you interested in leadership?
1: Okay, excellent. So when I was a kid, I found that I had a passion for building things. I'd go and construct different things. And what I really enjoyed is that you can build things and send them out into the world and then other people can make use of them to make their lives better. And I got very interested in software early on because I found that you could build something that would be really valuable. And it almost has a life of its own in the world. When I found that looking at leading people is that you can have systems of people that then build things at a much greater rate than you're able to build them yourself. And in a sense, you then have a much greater ability to help the world if you can have groups of people that are able to be inspired and and are able to effectively deliver value in the world. So that's what inspired me to get involved in leadership.
2: Mm,
0: no, that's pretty incredible. Awesome. And so can you describe a moment in your career where your leadership skills were put to the test and how you navigated those challenges?
1: Leadership has a lot of different challenges and certainly in, in I have had some time in project management as well. One, one key item that I can probably bring out is where you have differences in expectations and being able to understand what they are as early as possible and then address them. So one challenge that I had once was where, because I would put the effective metrics in place early on, I was able to show using real-world data that the objectives that we were aiming for weren't going to be achieved in the time frame that we had had anticipated. And I was able to have the conversation with the the team and the, the customer to be able to understand what that difference was, what the root cause was, and we were able to get in and correct that. Now, you're only really able to tackle problems effectively if there's a certain amount of trust between the parties. So I spent a lot of time and energy building the trust so that we can have a call, I call it a guiding coalition, to address problems and solve them.
0: Okay, so how, please elaborate on how you would build this trust with your team.
1: There's trust not just with the team, but also with the people that you are serving as well. And the way the most effective way to build trust is to be able to keep your promises. And it starts with small things. If you make a promise to do something, then you build trust when you follow through and you do that thing that you promised to do. And trust is really about people knowing that you have their best interests at heart, that you're not going to be telling them one thing and then down the line they find out that you've actually been building something that is opposed to what their vision of the future is. So that's the most
0: critical part of trust. Mm. Okay, and have you found that quite a lot within the business organisational landscape where people will deceive or...
1: Absolutely. What's a politician's thing is that you... When you work with any group of people, then um, what tends to start happening is that you tailor your conversation or your, your communication to suit the needs of the different groups. Now, where that crosses the line is where you say one thing, but you mean a different thing. And that can break trust completely. Mm. So Mm. it's about that integrity. It's about keeping to what you say is what you do.
0: Mm. That is actually really important. And definitely something to anchor yourself towards as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So how do you define effective leadership and what are the key qualities you believe leadership should possess other than trust?
1: So in order to be successful for any group of people, you need to be aligned in the same direction. You need to be aiming for the same goal. If you're working at odds with each other, in other words, if you, are, if you have factions and you have one group that wants to do things one way and the other group that wants to do things the other way, that can develop into animosity between the groups, there's an us and them culture, and then you have fracturing. I've always found when I've enjoyed watching history videos on YouTube, and i find found that one of the things that causes empires throughout history to break down is when you have fracturing internally, more so than external threats is that you have two parties that can't see eye to eye anymore and then all of a sudden you find that they're fighting each other rather than solving problems together. So that's the most important attribute, is to make sure that you are focused on a common goal and that you support each other in terms of achieving that goal.
0: Mm. So if you came across a team where it uh, fractured, how would you help um, reconcile or um, homogenise the group?
1: Through collaboration. So if you build mechanisms where you can increase the extent to which they're able to work together on things, then you're able to break down those, those silos. Often when you structure organisations into separate units that don't communicate with each other, then trust breaks down. So by building um, a connection between them means that they don't see the other person as the evil one who's trying to go against them or the opposition. So it, it builds that connective tissue.
0: Mm. So would you say stuff like team building for organisations, like going out and doing things together to form a relationship or friendship outside of work, because then that way you can increase trust, start forming common goals?
1: That's one mechanism to try and accelerate that. So the whole idea of team building when you go off-site and you, you build, carry logs together and you go and solve puzzles or whatever it is together, that is an a mechanism to try and speed up that process. So what it does is it takes maybe months and months of working together in the office and tries to compress it into a weekend. When you come back and you feel that connectedness to the other people. But you can still achieve the same thing in the office. What you do is you just make sure that when you have tasks and when you have flow that you connect the people more closely together with respect to the work, especially with respect to customer value that if you're able to shorten the distance between the people that use the thing that's being produced and the people that produce those things, then you're able to increase the the customer value and reduce the amount of waste that's associated with that.
0: Mm. That's very insightful, very insightful. And so in your experience, what are the most common mistakes leaders make and how can this be avoided?
1: So leaders tend to make uh, um, mistakes in a couple of different areas. I think the one mistake is that they believe that it is their responsibility to solve all of the problems of the team. And by taking ownership of the problems themselves, they believe that they need to be the thought leaders, probably are the wrong word, they need to be the people that do all of the intellectual hard work and that then break that down into instructions that they then give to their members who then do the same thing to people who report into them. And the impact of that is that it actually disempowers the people below the in the hierarchy. And then it also promotes laziness because then what happens is that the individuals who are reporting into the leader, they don't take responsibility for solving their own problems. They just sit back, relax, let the leader do the thinking, and then just follow instructions. And then when things go wrong, then they say, well, was just following what you told me to. You made a bad decision, and as a result of that, we went down this bad path. My recommendation is for, in, in terms of that specific item, is for leaders to be able to take on a servant leader approach, where the purpose of leaders is to facilitate their teams to be able to perform at their best, not to own their team's problems, but to help their teams to discover those problems and overcome them themselves as a group. And that the manager or the leader can then play a role of communicating their challenges to senior leadership or to break down those issues with or or to remove roadblocks that would prevent the group from being able to achieve what they need to.
0: So if you had to break this down, you've got a a team or a group and what they're doing is rather than you providing instructions and they follow – you would say, hey guys, this is the problem that we all need to solve. How do we work together to solve this problem? And you have a brainstorming session. Or how would you approach that?
1: Depends on the problem. So you a lot of it's about transparency. So it's about raising the issue to the level where the team can be aware of what the issue is. I'm a, a firm believer in what I call bring out your dead. So what this is saying that you don't hide problems that you have because they can become smelly and cause problems. So what you do is follow the principles from, I think it was the, middle, the early Middle Ages, when you had the bubonic plague. What would happen is this would sweep through Europe, and you'd have this principle of bring out your dead. So everyone would need to take all the dead bodies, bring them out into the street, and then you'd have people that would collect them and take them away. What this means is that whenever you, anybody in the team discovers something that's a little bit smelly, then you point to it, you say what it is, and you have a no-blame culture in order to be able to collectively work out a, a best solution to solve that. So part of that is creating an environment of psychological safety. And I can't stress how important psychological safety is. Mm-hmm. It's the ability to make mistakes and to learn from those mistakes without having a the sort of Damocles over your head saying that if you step makes one step out of line then all of a sudden your career is on the line and we never make mistakes. I was watching a, a, a YouTube video last night about Jeff Bezos where he made this enormous mistake. It was hundreds of millions of dollars worth of mistake. And when they asked him about this, he said, we're working on much bigger mistakes at the moment and saying that you can't be a successful company or organisation unless you're willing to make take risks, make mistakes and then move forward. And the only way that you're able to have a culture where you can be free to experiment and have, be free to be able to innovate an effective future is if the organisation is able to tolerate when mistakes are made. And a lot of that is about fostering a culture of trust and a culture of psychological safety.
0: That is that is actually really valuable insight because I can see how in the, the short term as a a leader or a boss or whatever it may be, you would want, if somebody makes a mistake, you think by yelling at them or saying, you can't do that, they would not want to do that again and rectify. But I understand what you're saying, it creates a sense of anxiety. And so people are unable to think larger or, or become more confident in their decisions because they're always mindful of, of what's going to happen.
1: It also depends on the level of the of the group and the individuals. So if you have people that are very new to something, then they would need to be guided a lot more than people who have been operating in a particular field for a very long period of time. And also the seniority of the resource means that somebody is able to take ownership and be responsible for things. If you have somebody who is is very much used to working on a level where they need to be instructed on everything, then often a very prescriptive approach is important. And if there's an environment where there's low trust as well, so if you have a high trust environment, then people can have a lot more autonomy. But in a low trust environment where it's a case of uh, win-lose, then you may find that people will take advantage of any situation where they're given autonomy. So you have to build that trust. You have to build that psychological safety early. And when you've got a team that's able to tackle that, then you can provide more autonomy and, and uh, build the, the ladder up to high performance.
0: Mm. So, would you say that um, having this no-blame psychological safety um, and allowing people to take their own responsibilities—that's the the main common mistake that leaders make, or is there other ones that you can elaborate on?
1: Um, just to first to correct, it's not a no-blame situation. There's still there's still blame, um, but in the case of if somebody commits a crime, for example, then and obviously people need to take responsibility for their actions. So it's not saying that it's a that it's a no no blame situation, but it's a situation where people are allowed to make mistakes, and if they make mistakes with the best interests of the company at heart, and they're able to going on, on on a pathway that they really believed was the right way, then that's where the no blame comes in. If somebody maliciously and intentionally causes harm to others, then there's definitely blame there. So it's about knowing the distinction in terms of the the benefit, and. But people can make very big mistakes if their intentions are are good and that should be accepted. So that's where that distinction comes through.
0: So how do you approach team building and fostering a positive, productive work culture within your project? Now, we've mentioned trust, which is really good. We've mentioned, obviously, having a safe space where people can talk and feel comfortable. What other things can you aid to that?
1: Uh, I'm a strong believer in the uh, principle of servant leadership. So there's a really good book by a... David Marquette. So David Marquette wrote this book called Turn That Ship Around. And what he did is he took one of the worst performing ships in the US Navy and it was a submarine. Now you can imagine what the command structure would look like in a in a US submarine. And what he did is he used the principle of servant leadership to be able to transform the ship from being the worst performing ship to the to the best performing one. And the way that it worked is that he, instead of taking this command and control approach to the ship, what he did is he took a a principle of allowing the professionals in the team to be able to do their work effectively and and come to him to remove barriers or to resolve issues that they couldn't solve at their level. So instead of it being a top-down command and control approach, it became a bottom-up approach where people are trusted to perform their roles on the basis that they are professionals that really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And what that did is that allowed them to be successful. So I put the key principles around motivated teams down to three things. And this is from a book by a guy called Dan Pink. So what he wrote this book called Drive. And the three principles that he came through on that is he said, if you want motivated people you've got to do three things you've got to provide them with autonomy mastery and purpose and if you can achieve those three things then you you end up having a, a team that is a lot more motivated than otherwise the example that he provided in his book is he said can you imagine if I came to you with the business idea and I said yeah we're going to make millions out of this idea what we're going to do is we're going to take professionals who are really good at their jobs that are motivated people, work really hard. What they're going to do is they're going to, after they've spent a hard day of work, they're going to come home, and instead of spending time with their families or watching TV or relaxing, we're going to get them to work for another two to three hours every single night on this thing that we're producing, and we're going to get them to do it for free. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take all of their work together and we're going to bundle that up into a product, and then we're going to give that product away to the public for free. We're going to make millions. That's such a good business idea. So if you put that to somebody and you said, is this a good business proposition? A lot of people might look at it and say, no, why would people do that? Why would they go out and spend that time and go and and do something where they're not actually getting paid for it? And it turns out that's the business model for Linux, And Linux is one of the most successful products in the sense that it's being used ubiquitously across business. It's used as the operating system for most business applications. So why is that? Why would people do that? And it comes down to those three things, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So on the autonomy side, it's being able to go out and have some say over how your work is done and have some control over your work The mastery bit is saying that as you do your work, it contributes towards your career path in terms of things that you want to get better at. And the purpose side is being able to contribute towards something that's bigger than yourself. So one question I've got for you is saying, why would people enjoy playing computer games? Because essentially when you play a computer game, you're doing work. You need to go and you need to solve a problem. You need to go and slash a demon or you need to go and race a car or you need to go and do some work things there are some reasonably successful computer games which are work simulators where you go in and you are a person who has to sit behind a counter and do fast food serve people fast food there's a job simulator for doing a whole range of different jobs so why would people go in pay money buy a game that does what other people really hate doing when they go to work, to to stand behind a fast food counter and and basically serve people hot dogs. And they'll spend their free time doing it for a computer game where no one's going to know and will care about the fact that they got a high score.
0: So why would they do it?
1: It's because it it ticks those boxes for them. The purpose one, I think, is probably a little bit less on the computer game side, but the mastery is there because you, you start solving small problems and you work your way up the ladder to become more and more proficient at doing that thing and the autonomy is that they can choose when to play it they can play it at any time they want they can maybe choose the difficulty settings and all those sorts of things if you can bring those principles into your teams at work then you are um, much more likely to have a a team that's motivated and is able to achieve things
0: so that's extremely valuable insight I'm just taking those into two different categories or avenues one is saying okay I'm hiring staff so I'm a startup I'm hiring staff when you hire staff how can you include those three into your hiring process and then the second question or part of this question is taking those three things now I've already got a team but I didn't know about these three things now I've Mm. just listened to this podcast I'm like okay I need to incorporate this how do you then incorporate that to your current team who may not be Predispositioned, or you haven't hired them with those intents. Mm. Those two things in mind.
1: The hiring process is particularly tricky anyway because you've got to try and get a sense of a person in the hour or half an hour that you've got with them to do the interview. And a lot of people practice for interviews. So, what they'll do is they'll go and look through the interview questions and they'll say, What am I likely to be asked? And then, What's the best answer for that? Then, they'll give that answer. So you've got to be able to cut through that to find out something about who they are in essence. With job interviews, the first thing you need to establish, obviously, is what is their competency in the actual role? That's generally relatively easy to say, can they do the job? And the way to do that in an interview effectively is to ask them, not can you please describe the things that this role would do, but ask them specific questions around their experience in that particular area. Mm. So in other words, is the STAR method. That's situation, task, activity, and outcome. Something like that. Result, I think, is at the end. Uh, so what that does is it makes them think of a situation in their careers where they've experienced that particular thing and that they've been able to solve the problem that they needed to solve in their role. So where that helps is that means that they're not taking something that they've read in a textbook somewhere and they're just regurgitating it back to you. It means that you can see how they've actually been able to take that knowledge and they've been able to apply it in a practical situation. Now, with you need, what you need to do in an interview is also then to ask follow-up questions that allow you to be able to establish, do they actually know that particular area or is it just a story that they heard that somebody else had done that they're just regurgitating? So that's the first bit is being able to establish, can they do the job? The second part is a, a bit more difficult is to understand the softer topics. So for example, do they have integrity? And one way of doing that is to look at the way in which they address the questions that you've got. So looking at the to what was their contribution towards the outcome and what was the team's contribution. And you can get a sense of the extent to which they're trying to aggrandized themselves and I was the hero all the time that solved all the problems or I was part of a team and other people solved some of the problems and this was my part of it so you can get a a sense of that the second part question that you can look at or the thing that you can look at is are they team players for example are they people that are going to be able to are, are they going to be able to effectively work in the environment one part of that is saying are they people who are driven by fear or are they driven by opportunity? So you have the contrast between your fixed mindset people and your growth mindset people. Now that's not to say that there aren't roles for fixed mindset people but they operate more effectively in a command and control type situation where they are focused on reducing risk and they're focused on being able to have certainty Now what you don't want to do is you don't want to take a person who has a fixed mindset and put them into an environment where you want to have a growth-minded approach to work. So growth-minded people are people that are inspired about the future they're willing to take risks, they're willing to modify their approach, they, they can operate when there's a certain amount of uncertainty, they like adapting to solve problems and all that sort of thing. So understand your work environment that you are bringing them into and understand then what the fit is between the person that you are interviewing and that role. So if you've got a, a fixed mindset environment and a fixed mindset person, then that would be a good fit.
0: Mm. Now that makes sense. Yeah, okay. No, so you've, you've given some good breakdown there um, I'm just looking so during that interview process um, you're finding out how they previously related how they related in previous roles um, mm-hmm. how they managed to complete tasks what obstacles they overcame or how they overcame those um, and then finding out which environment they would be best to work
1: in. well it's about a fit so when you're hiring somebody you look at your environment it's about an understanding how they would fit in with the team and then seeing whether they're the right person for that. Hmm. So how do you interact with your team? How do you how do they operate with each other? Is it a are you wanting them to follow a process exactly as it is without going off on their own tangent? Or do you want them to go in there and innovate and, and discover and explore and, and try different things? So if you don't want them to have a lot of freedom, you want them to just stick to the script, then you want a you want a fixed mindset person. But if you want them to be able to club together as a team and work out ways to do things better, then you want a growth mindset person.
0: And so a way to filter through, because if you ask somebody, oh, would you like to come up with new ideas or explore things? A lot of people I could imagine, particularly in an interview wanting to impress the company, would be like, oh, of course, yes. But in reality, they actually go really well in a very structured, oriented Mm -hmm. manner. So even in that process, it's quite difficult because if you can ask somebody direct questions they may not be giving you the correct answers.
1: Yes, so you don't ask the question directly. It's not like you can say to somebody, hey, do you have integrity? Yep. Or you say to somebody, hey, are you a nice person? Mm. Then how many people are going to look, turn around and say, no, I'm actually not a nice person. <laughs> I'm terrible. I, I, I do all these horrible things. Yep. So you do it by asking specific questions. So for example, you can say, can you please describe an idea that you've come up with in a recent job where you've been able to change the way in which the company operated? or even your team operated, and what was the outcome of that? Mm. And if they come back with something, a story that maybe they've read somewhere, then you can f- have a follow-up question that said, and what obstacles did you have to your idea being accepted? And what did you do about that? Mm. And questions like that, then if it's something that they've just made up, then you've answered the integrity question, and also at the other, by the same token, you've understood if they, they really have done that or not.
0: Yep. Yeah, okay, no, that completely makes sense. Awesome. Okay, so now taking those three things autonomy, mastery, and purpose and adding that to your team that you've already hired.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So even if you have people that start out with a fixed mindset, you can still move them towards having more of a growth mindset by providing structures that bring out that autonomy, mastery, and purpose. I'd like to refer to the principle of Shuhari which is a Japanese principle. The way shuhari works is the, and I think it was a samurai thing, if I'm not mistaken, says that learning comes in three stages. So the shu stage is a stage where you don't know anything. You come in, you, you're really new, and this is a whole new domain that you, you, you haven't understood at all. And the, the only way that you're going to be able to learn that is to bring out the rule books about that particular thing and follow that those principles exactly. So, for example, if you are learning how to read, you need to understand each of the letters, what they mean. You need to understand how to make words. You need to understand you follow all of the instructions exactly. The hard stage is when you understand those rules well enough to be able to teach other people. So you can go and say, I understand how to do reading. You can go to other people and you can go and you can teach them how to read. The the re-stage, so that second stage is the high stage. The third stage is the re-stage, is when you understand the domain well enough that you are able to then go and explore different things so you're able to then take it further. Now, the interesting thing about this is that when you get to the re-stage, it becomes very difficult for you to actually train people, that you can't train the shoe people. And that's because you've got to the point where you've actually forgotten about the rules. So if you take, for example, driving a car, and I think some time back I taught you how to drive, is it was really tricky for me at times because I'd, so many things were automatic for me, that to be able to show you whether you put the pedal first or you put the gear first or you do the indicator and all that sort of thing because I was doing all of that automatically. Mm. So to go and take what I was doing automatically and convert it back into a rule book and then a set of specific instructions that you do is not something that's really easy to do. For example, if you know how to ride a bike... Can you explain the process of riding a bike to somebody who's never ridden a bike before?
0: Mm, particularly the balancing aspect, because it's just so unnatural to be able to balance on two wheels. Mm. That's why you see kids who have the four training wheels and they take mm. them off and they keep falling over. Mm. <laughs> and then it just clicks.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. So there's certain things that you do so naturally and you, you've done it so long that it's just part of your DNA. And so that you have these three stages of the Shuhari. And your workforce then fall into those different categories. So if you have somebody that's new, then you need to be prescriptive with them in a domain that they're not familiar with. But when they get to a level of competency where they understand how it works, then you can start inspiring them to go and and, um, and go and experiment with different approaches to that. But you don't want to get somebody who's new to something experimenting on how that works. Mm. So for example, if you have somebody who's never cooked before and doesn't know what a stove is, you don't want them experimenting with maybe turning on all the, turning all the knobs to see what happens and then you end up with burning hands being burnt or pots being destroyed because there's no water in them or, or yep. something like that.
0: Yep. Applying that to businesses, not putting somebody into an area that they've never done before so that they can explore because they could...
1: No, you want to put people in areas that they haven't done before because that's part of mastery is that you can allow them to explore and become better people. Yep. But you don't want to put them in there without enough support to be able to be successful in that area. And part of that support that you'd give them is the ability to have the instructions and the rule book on how to do that thing initially until they become sufficiently familiar with that area that they're able to innovate.
0: Yep. Yeah, okay. Yep. No, oh, that's awesome. What strategies do you use to stay adaptable and responsive in fast-changing or high-pressure situations? And how do you ensure your team remains aligned and motivated during these times?
1: Mm. That's a very good question. So a lot, and, and it's all about setting up flows. So it's about creating a structures where people are able to communicate effectively with each other so that they can understand what it is that we're aiming to achieve as a team. So that's the first thing is making sure that everyone knows what the outcome is that you are aiming for, whether it's focused on on increasing customer base or profits or whatever it is, having the goal, sustainability, and then to be able to break that down into the smaller bits where each individual group within that can have a target that they can contribute towards that goal. And then to make sure that you have that fast feedback loop rather than going off and producing this big castle over three, two, three years, whatever the case is, and then one day unveiling the thing, and then go, ta this is what we spent all these millions building, to focus on saying, let's do things in smaller chunks. Find a way in which we can be able to deliver a smaller thing, get people to use that smaller thing, provide feedback on that, and then be able to elaborate and build on that. And there's a lot of techniques and methods and so on that one can do that where you don't really need to have very many situations where you have to have one big thing at the end that you unveil. Mm -hmm. It can be a little bit more expensive at times, but the benefit is, is that you end up reducing the waste because otherwise when you unveil this big castle at the end, you find that you made a lot of assumptions along the way.
0: Yep. And I think one book that definitely spurs to mind when you say that is the Lean Startup which you also recommended to read and mm. it was really good because that's all about, particularly if you're a startup or anything, if you're launching a new product, just start really small and then see what the market actually wants rather than what you think the market wants.
1: Absolutely. That, that feedback is so important, especially for startups, mm. is that you, you typically have a, a runway when you, if you don't get something off the ground in a period of time, then you run out of money and then you become one of those 80% of startup companies that don't end up succeeding. And the reason for that is that you didn't, make, you didn't get fast enough feedback to be able to change direction. Mm. So to really zero in on what it is that people are going to respond to. Because the thing is, you can say, hey, the market is really going to enjoy this new toffee-flavored ice cream that you think you're making or this, this new widget that you, you're putting together. But you don't know what people are going to respond to. And a lot of success in companies is potluck in the sense that nobody knew that people would respond really well to this new thing. So, being able to make a really inexpensive bet, get fast feedback, and then say, yes, this is worth persevering with, or no, we should pivot to something else because it's not really getting the responses that we had expected, or it sets the mark, but we need to refine it. Mm. Having that information early on is, in, I think in most cases, the difference between success and failure in startup companies. Mm. And David Bland has produced this book called Testing Business Ideas, which we, so we had David Bland come and chat to us at the Agile Brisbane Group. And his principle is he wrote a book called Testing Business Ideas, which focuses on patterns for these experiments where they can be really low cost and that can allow you to determine whether or not you're you're on the right track or not. And then you develop the idea a bit more. You do something that is a bit more targeted, but perhaps a slightly more expensive experiment to refine it so that you really hit the mark well. So one of of my favourite patterns within his book is called Wizard of Oz. I don't know if you remember the Wizard of Oz movie when Dorothy gets to the end of the yellow brick road. She finds that instead of this big powerful monster that the Wizard of Oz is actually this diminutive guy behind the scenes pulling a whole lot of levers and basically controlling the machine that allowed her to believe that it was a big, powerful wizard. Mm -hmm. The Wizard of Oz pattern, the way that it works is in technology terms, for example. You can have a, a website that people can go and connect to, but it's got nothing behind it. It just sends an email to somebody and then you have a person actually responding. And you can set that up in literally a day, and you can be able to determine whether or not people are going to respond well to that, that sort of service that you're offering.
0: Yeah, that's a good idea. The only thing that comes to mind in that as a opposing view, so to speak, is I think it was Henry Ford that was like, when I asked the people what they wanted, they said a foster horse. Mm-hmm. And by him building a car or a motor vehicle, he didn't give them what they wanted. Mm-hmm. He gave them something that they didn't even know that they wanted. <coughs> And that's the only thing that I keep thinking is, okay, so I'm testing the market, but what happens if there's something?
1: Absolutely. And that's why it's so important to do that. that that's actually the business case for experimenting because traditional, the traditional process is you run, run a survey. So you go and you ask a whole lot of people, you say, hey, do you want to, do you want to go faster or do you want to go slower? And the people what people tell you in surveys is not the same as what they're going to do in real life. So, as an example, there was a a survey that I, I participated in uh, around bus routes and, and public transport, and the question was put to me as saying, "What one thing can we do to uh, public transport that's going to make it better for you?" And I thought the difficulty for me in getting to work is that that first mile, so being able to get to the train station, and then from the train station going to the city, and then walking from the city to the work is Often what I'd need to do is I'd need to drive my car to the train station, park maybe 20 minutes walk away because there's so many cars parked there, walk all the way to the train station, take the train and then go in. if I could have a way in which I could get from my house really quickly to the train station, then that would be something that would be great and I'd be willing to walk to the local shopping centre, which was a 10 minutes walk away. And... I think it was about a year later. I noticed that there was actually a bus service that went from the shopping centre to the train station, mm. and I'm not sure if my response contributed towards that situation. But the I ended up not using it at all, not once. <laughs> and the reason was because when actually when the practical situation came, there it ended up not being that practical for me because the bus that went straight from that shopping centre all the way to the city ended up being a better option than actually taking a bus, then getting to the station, and then going off from the station to the train. Mm. And I think that's an example of where surveys can point you generally in the right direction, but you only really find out what people are likely to do when you actually put something physical in front of them and say, "Okay, here's the thing, are you going to spend the money? Are you going to spend that $10 and buy the thing? And if they do that, then you know there's a market for that.
0: Okay, so a way to test that without building the product or are you suggesting you spend money building the product?
1: What I'm suggesting is that you find a way to build the product in a very lightweight way Yeah, that doesn't actually involve building the full product, but has a lot, of, a lot of people running around in the background actually making the cogs work. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you another example. Is there was a shoe shop where when I think it was Amazon was just starting or eBay or one of those those groups. So there was a, he, what he did is he, he had an apartment opposite the shoe shop. And so what he did is he went to the shoe shop and he said to the owner, look, do you mind if I take pictures of your shoes? Because what I'm hoping to do is to sell some of them. So what I'll do is I'll come and buy shoes if I sell them for you. And he was thinking the shoe shop owner sent extra revenue, great. <laughs> so he took pictures of all of his shoes. And he put them all onto Amazon or eBay or whatever, I'm not sure which, which one it was. And then when somebody went and bought the, 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 the pair of shoes, he walked across the road to the shoe shop, bought the shoes, put them in a box and then sent them off um, to the okay. post office. And what happened is when the orders started coming in and, and the volume increased to a point where he realised this was a viable business, he then went and started buying his own shoes bulk from the suppliers yep. and his own warehousing and then built a website and all that sort of thing to do all of the work. Mm. So that's a situation where he didn't actually have any technology at all at the beginning. But he achieved the ability to know that there was a real business there.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think when I look at that, it spurs to mind a few things. One, that would be dropshipping, for example, where you list a product on the website and then you can drop ship it from another source and then if you have enough then you do it yourself which is awesome and then there would also be potentially like lead generation so if you're promoting on meta for example putting surveys or things not surveys sorry like questions "Are if you're really interested in learning more about no sugar put your name and number in here and i can send you further information and then that may give you an insight as to how many people are interested in no sugar consuming no sugar in their diet. And so then therefore, if you create a product that's around no sugar, then you've really got a warm database that you can then start to leverage off of and grow.
1: Yes and no. So I think with a lot of things that, if you take principles that have been applied before, in other words, with the the lead generation or with the going and doing the Dropbox, dropshipping and that sort of thing, then a lot of those markets have, being saturated to a certain extent because those are well-known patterns so i think if you take it a step back and you say is there a way to check whether or not the this thing that i want to produce whether people will actually spend the money to buy that thing without needing to actually produce the whole product
0: so you put it as a pre-sale or you would just sell the product and then say to them sorry there's a delay
1: that's the, that, that's what you've got to work out mm. because it, there's benefits to doing it in, in, in a whole lot of different ways. And obviously some products are a lot more difficult to do that with because if you need to go and produce something, for example, if you're selling diamonds and you don't have any diamonds, then it can be quite tricky to to be able to say, you could get a whole lot of people to buy the diamonds and then you say, sorry, there's no diamonds or there's a delay, but you might end up losing the market mm. because then your name becomes... Tarnished. Tarnished. You lose the integrity. and The, the next time you go out and you say, all right, now I really do have diamonds... Then are you the boy that crowd wolf? Mm.
0: Mm. It is interesting seeing brand development too, though. I think a lot of people put so much pressure on trying to create the perfect brand straight away. But a lot of the time, like I've studied some brands and watched how they've changed and grown over the years. And what you think everyone will never buy from you again because of this one bad experience. Yes, they may tell 10 people and you may lose 10 people. But as long as you keep learning and growing and cultivating new customers, like 20 years ago or however long, when Lululemon started, nobody even knew that they existed Mm. besides his tiny, small, little subsection. And I'm sure he would have annoyed a few people there. And if you listen to his story, there was Mm. a huge amount of product development and product growth Mm. and shifting. So
1: less, less scrupulous people could create brands that are throwaway brands. So they create a brand that they then use for all these experiments and then... And that brand ends up getting their its reputation tarnished and then they go and use the other brand when it comes through. But I wouldn't advocate that because that's acting in bad faith.
0: Mm-hmm. No, these are some really good good insights as well. Uh, so can you describe the sense of meaning and fulfillment that work can bring to an individual? So the reason I'm asking this is because we spoke about autonomy, mastery, purpose, and just really understanding at the moment that there is quite a lot of people who there's a well, the great resignation. People are resigning very quickly in a lot of roles. They're jumping between roles. And there's even like a whole culture out there that's, oh, work is bad. Why are we working? Why don't we just spend all day watching TV, doing nothing? I'm done with society. What, yeah, so I'm saying that question again. Can you describe the sense of meaning and fulfillment that work can bring to an individual?
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think for me, what gets me out of the bed in the out of bed in the morning is being able to know that I've made somebody else's life a bit better. So whether it's through contributing towards the production of a product that can help somebody or it's helping the people that produce that product and being able to create an environment where they are more motivated and enjoy their, their work day more. So that's that's what gets me out of bed. And I think that the same is true for a lot of other people is that if they get that sense of autonomy, mastery and purpose then they can go out and they can be fulfilled and they can be they can get benefit out of that. We spend what, eight hours a day, five days a week for most of our productive lives. If you think of people, say, below sixteen years old that that's really just coming into the for sort of finding out who they are as people and so your life really begins when you after school when you start finding yourself as a person. And then when you get to the retirement age, then after that it's really that you you don't have the same energy and the same vigour and the same ability to contribute as you had during your working life. So it's really those productive years where you're spending every single weekday, except for your holidays, for eight hours a day. So if you don't spend that time doing something that is rewarding for you and productive for you, then it's a waste of a life. Mm so it's important for people to really focus on how to enjoy their time and how to how they can uh, productively
0: contribute Mm, because that also can then split into two things it's okay what you think leads to a fulfilled more enjoying life may not necessarily be that so mm. i think if you ask a lot of people it's like oh what do you want to do oh i'd love to just spend all my time on a, a yacht or a boat or mm. something and drink cocktails all day mm. but i think if you actually gave that to that person
2: mm.
0: in a month's time maybe the first few weeks be like, oh that's amazing but then it would slowly dwindle and you mm. actually meet those people who seemingly have everything but actually don't and i think that's mm. why that question is so important because it's finding the meaning and fulfillment that work can bring and i like Mm. what you said where it's something that you genuinely enjoy and Mm. you personally wanting to make sure that other people um, have a better outcome and Mm. that seems to be where your heart is and so yeah like for individuals finding that meaning and purpose
1: yeah, that, that's a really important question because especially now that we're moving into the new world of AI and there's been talk around things like universal basic income. Mm. When If a situation arises where most people start losing their jobs because machines can do it a lot more easily, then you could find a situation where you have most people living off universal ba- basic income or the dole or that sort of thing. The challenge you have there is that work does contribute towards people's meaning in life. Is that you, when you aren't working and when you're living off the state or you're living off maybe some inheritance money or something like that, that you can very easily lose your direction. I think even people like Howard Hughes, for example, when he got towards a certain level of wealth income, then he lost his North Star. He ended up sitting in his pyjamas watching movies all day for in a dark room and not, not wanting to go out and do anything mm. because when everything is available to you for free or you don't have to exert any energy in order to be able to do things, then that can take you completely off track and you can go off in a weird direction.
0: Yeah, and it happens so gradually as well because you would be like, oh, I just don't really feel like doing much today and then, oh, I don't really feel like doing much today and then eventually it becomes so difficult Mm. for you to actually do something because you're so Mm. used to not doing something. But Mm. then by you pushing yourself in one direction that you actually don't feel like doing, Mm. it grows and provides a greater sense of accomplishment or reward
2: Mm. over a
0: prolonged period of time. And I think actually there's an area of your brain, I can't remember the exact terminology now, where it actually grows the more that you do something that you don't want to do. Mm. So if you don't want to go into an ice bath or if you don't want to uh, exercise, mm. you start doing that and that area of your brain grows and allows it becomes much easier for mm. you to do more things that you, I think, want to advance in because people have this expectation idea of what they want to do mm. versus what they're currently doing. Mm. And to get from A to B is usually quite difficult and that's why most people don't make that shift. Mm. But building that just like you're building anything else can actually be done.
1: That's true, but people also sometimes do things for leisure that include a lot of things that they don't want to do. Mm. For example, if you have a mountain climber that climbs Mount Everest or the north face of Mont Blanc or one of those places, that involves a lot of absolute agonising pain and hardship to do that. Every single step in some parts of that journey is absolutely painful and even destroys aspects of their health that they'll never be able to be as healthy in some cases as they were before. But they'll do it because they want to plant that flag at the top. Mm. They want to say, I was the first person or the tenth person, whatever it is, to achieve this goal. And that drives people.
0: Yeah, that brings you back to the mastery purpose element that you said before.
1: And and autonomy as well. Mm. So by people then, even if it's not something that they need to do for work, that they then choose to do these things that are difficult to do because... Allows them to. I think, was it Kennedy that said about getting to the moon? He said, "We don't do it because it's easy; we do it because it's hard." Mm. And a lot of, and I think there's a parallel between that and a lot of this other stuff.
0: Yeah, very powerful. And um, coming back then to AI, because that literally is shaking up everything. And I know that you've um, participated in a few talks around this topic. Where do you see this then? Relating back to two things. One, uh, with people who would more likely go towards the avenue of not doing the the path of least resistance, which is gradually moving more and more towards the couch and consumption, versus that actual participation, which enhances your quality of life and your overall experience of life, because it seems that those autonomy, mastery, and purpose are deep within our biological structures Mm. that have adapted over hundreds of thousands of years. Mm. So, to remove all of that, where we've had all of our needs instantly met. What does that even look like? And even, yeah, I guess that maybe there's two questions because that's a huge podcast in and of itself. But one is utilizing AI to further your growth and further the direction in which you want to go to or the consequences.
1: Yeah. It's quite possible that we could get to a point in the next, within our generation, that you could have machines do what people do. So in other words, that there won't be any role that you could have a person do that they could do it better than a machine. It's possible that we could get to that in the next 10, 15 years sort of thing. Now, that's immediately going to create a crisis for society. So the, society, the crisis will be that exact point that you raised, is saying in the event that you maybe have something like UBI where people are no longer constrained by needing to work for their income, then what will that do to people's sense of meaning and, and purpose? And a lot of people uh, assign their meaning and purpose to what they do. Mm. For example, if you ask somebody what their profession is, say, or, or sorry, if you, if you are, meet somebody for the first time and you say, hi, I'm John, who, and your, do you do? your name is Mary, and saying, can you describe yourself? Not, not even what you do. If you just say to them, can you describe yourself? They'll say, oh, no, I'm Mary, I'm a doctor, I I've I've live in this area, whatever it is. But it'll, the big focus is on what they do. How do they fit into the, the machine? What's their contribution? It's, it comes down to the very language we use. So if we think of English, when you, think of, when you describe things, this is a table. This isn't a brown thing with these pointy bits sticking out of it. That's a chair over there. It's not a velvet, flat-shaped thing. So the way we describe things, the words we use, is based on the purpose. A table is something that's used to hold objects that we use. A chair is something that you have for sitting on. So when we talk about people and we say it, we describe them in terms of their utility to other things. So when you lose and you're no longer able to contribute towards society, what does that do for you as a person? Now, I think that, that ends up going into one of two directions. Is that For a lot of people, they won't do anything that it requires exertion unless they are, there's some consequence to them of doing that. So unless they will end up not being able to eat or or they won't be able to get money or whatever it is, they won't do that thing. And then there's another group that will say, I want to choose things which have meaning for me because I've chosen for them to have meaning for me because I get something out of doing those things and something perhaps non-tangible because I've chosen to plant the flag on the top of the mountain or I've chosen to beat that computer game. Whatever it is, it requires a lot of exertion and so on, but I'll do that because because it's not easy to do as being the primary goal and I'll get mastery out of that. Mm. And, and I think that's the way it's likely to unfold.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's really true. And I suppose when you're going back to that utility, there is a different school of thought which is like, oh, but people shouldn't be commoditized or our, our main um, goal shouldn't just be that we serve a utility. But then if I think about it, we've always, if you look at evolution, like you start off trying to hunt for your food and then you reach a point where we learn how to trade. And I think as soon as you start trading, then that's when you automatically have a utility to serve. Or even before that, in any society, you automatically switch from just a hunter-gatherer where there is no utility, you just got to hunt and eat. But even then, maybe you'd have the people who are hunters mm. and the people who are more likely to...
1: That's, that's the purpose part. Is that you don't want to be part of a village where everyone else is contributing something to the village, and and you're just there, they're just looking. That even a pet has got a purpose, yeah, because they give love put, put smiles <laughs> smiles on people's faces. And if you've got no purpose, you're just there, and they have to then serve you, and you um, don't contribute anything back to them. Then that saps on a person's sense of meaning.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
0: Yeah. So coming into this new AI landscape, which I know has been, everyone's talking about it and it's because it really is a shift in our entire reality. It's a shift in in everything. And, And during those shifts, it can be extremely exciting, but at the same time, invokes fear obviously because whenever there's change there's a lot of fear. Yeah that sounds really cool that one way to mitigate against that fear is to just continuously strive towards what brings purpose to my life and how can I start doing those things that may seem difficult in the short term but can help in the long term and even though maybe it's, see this is, it's, oh okay it's easier for me to just go on ChatGDP and and say write me a poem but it's, you sitting down and saying, do I really love writing? And if I do, then it's probably not in my best interest to just quickly ask chat GDP because that's an outcome maybe to sell or create a monetary value. If that's your objective, then sure, pump out poem by poem. But if your objective is to find meaning and purpose and growth, sit down and actually write that poem yourself.
1: There's probably going to be a bit of a shift happening. And poem is a good example because it's a really tricky one to navigate. But there's going to be a shift to a stamp that says this is created by a real human as being something that makes it more valuable. That if you have something that's created directly from a machine, then it becomes more of a... Uh, I think it was this debate a while ago between synthetic music and music created by a real instrument is mm. that we'll start seeing
0: that divergence coming through. I think we already have. If you listen to most of the pop music at the moment, very rarely, if ever, do I hear an actual instrument being played. A lot of the time it's... <laughs> All electronic,
1: sure. But the the tricky bit is to be able to identify where something is made by a human. I know there was a, there was a news recently this week, I think, where there was a question to say that one of the artificial, gen, artificial intelligence generators was able to produce Aboriginal art to the extent that it was impossible to determine that it hadn't been created by And that's going to be true for everything in the space of art and literature and any creative endeavours, to say that you won't be able to tell whether something's created by a human or not created by a human. Mm -hmm. So with that being the case, it means that it changes the nature of it. It's to say if you're doing that to generate income, then it becomes really difficult to justify that. So it becomes more of a personal thing. I'm doing this for myself, not for... Mm -hmm or anything well, else.
0: That's what really stems when you hit that point. And you can really start seeing it now where there's been a lot of stuff being placed on the internet. For example, influencers. To to somebody starting a business or wants to promote, you find influencers and they are quite expensive usually and just are very difficult sometimes to work with. But now people are creating AI, Instagram, social media accounts. And it's not quite at that point yet. You can tell that it's fake, but it's only been around very recent. So if you look at the trajectory of growth, very soon you will not be able to tell the difference. Mm. You really won't. And it'll be very quick. In some regards, that can be yeah, quite promising. But oh yeah, so maybe when you hit that point where you have these people who've leveraged off AI in the beginning to just accelerate their financial growth, then you have the people who haven't. Now, the people who've leveraged it to the point where they wouldn't necessarily even need to rely on universal basic income because they're just, mm. they have, generational wealth as a consequence of this mass division. But then you have the people who are on this universal basic income. They've lost their autonomy because who's controlling this universal basic income? What do they have to do in order to receive that money Mm. each month? And yeah, it's just a very interesting space. But either way, it seems that whether you've already made all of your money and or you're relying on universal basic income, or maybe there's other outcomes we don't know about yet, at the end of the day, you will have to start doing things hopefully for the love of doing it and not for the financial outcome.
1: Well also I think it's a bit of a race in the sense that if we see humans as being separate from the technology and we allow that to continue, then the pathway that we're going to find ourselves in is that you're gonna have humans who are not able to contribute towards the economy. And then you have the technology that does all the economic activity. Mm. So the question that we've got facing us at the moment is to say how quickly can we change our mindsets to see an integrated future as being the way to go? So by integrated future, I mean being able to augment ourselves so that we are able to make use of that technology as part of who we are in order to deliver results. So it's not a case of saying it's the GTP produced the poem and I added nothing. What I did is I created a prompt that was effective enough to have that poem generated. So the output is the combination of the prompt that was generated mm. and then the, the technology itself to produce that combined result using both. Now in the future, what it means is that being able to have a much more intimate relationship with that technology so that it's the human-machine combination that's able to succeed.
0: Yeah, see, this is where I come back to this again and again is at that point, you can't really separate what is you and what is machine because you've integrated with the machine. So it really feels like this is a shift in our evolution, a Mm. massive shift from farming, agriculture, industrial revolution, and then this integration with technology, which can open up so many things. But It's just so difficult to predict, and that's really interesting because we're going to be living through that time.
1: Interesting times.
0: Mm. No, I actually would love to um, continue talking about AI and other interesting topics, so hopefully I can have you on again sometime to share more of your insights. Um, But, yeah, thank you so much for... um, dedicating this time to talk about leadership because you've got so much experience in this field and somebody like myself just and I'm sure there's so many other people out there who are either starting something or are currently working within an organization that want to incorporate leadership it's such a when you're dealing with people and you want to grow that is such a valuable insight.
1: Lovely to speak to you about this these topics and thank you so much for the invitation looking forward to uh, speaking with you again.
0: Awesome. And actually, one more thing that I'd like to ask everyone is if you had one message to share with the world being a podcast, what message would that be?
1: To try and introduce autonomy, mastery and purpose to your people in your workforce.
0: Mm. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, guys.